Because I really believe today the Lord really wants to speak to our hearts. Father, thank you for this time today. Lord, we know that when we step off in, into eternity, we leave this planet, we're going to meet you face to face. Every single person that's ever been born in history will meet you face to face. And that is going to be the most unique experience of our entire lives. I pray today that you help us catch some of the gravitas of that moment as we consider something which is of vital importance to you. Lord, this is not just another subject. This is at the centre of your heart. Your word says the gospel is eternal. Before you even created the world, the eternal gospel was in your heart. Speak to us today, we pray. Move us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen. I'd like you to take your outlines out. And I want to read a quote. The evangelistic harvest is always urgent. The destiny of men and nations is being decided. Every generation is strategic. We're not responsible for the past generation. And we cannot bear full responsibility for the next one. But we do have our generation. And God will hold us responsible as to how we fulfill our responsibilities to this age and to take advantage of our opportunities. Those, family, are the words of Billy Graham. And that man ought to know what evangelism is all about. He's spoken to more people in our generation than anyone else. His evangelistic crusades have had an impact on more cities around the world than any other evangelistic outreach in the history of our time. We cannot think of the name Billy Graham without attaching to that the word evangelism. He has a strong grip on it, on that subject. But the question today, my friend, is do we? Probably not. Most of us want to. Some of us have even taken courses in evangelism. You've learned the four spiritual laws or Kennedy's approach. But our grip, unfortunately, on evangelism is embarrassingly weak. Ask yourself the question. Take a moment. Let's not rush over this. Ask yourself. I've been asking myself this very much, are you satisfied with the conversations that you have had with people who are undecided about Jesus?
Are you happy with the way you're going about your most important mission in life, which is not your career? That's a question for you to answer, but please, for God's sake, answer it. Just yesterday morning, a man came to my door and he was buying something through Trade Me. I was filling in the change of ownership papers. Tells you what I was selling. And I said, what, actually, I, I tell a fib, I was on my laptop doing it. After he transferred the money, it's great these days, all electronic. Boom, yes, it's in my bank, you can have it. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, typing the, uh, what was your name? Oh, Daniel Timothy. I won't say his last name. I said, oh, were your parents Christians? He said, absolutely were, but I'm not. I said, okay, let's talk about that after we fill this document in. <laughs> and so we did. He, I find out that he's a builder and we talked about, when you get to build a building, how do you know what to do? He said, well, I have a plan. He said, really? And we used that illustration of design and we went from a house down to a cell and said, what is the intelligence behind that? What is the most reasonable explanation? And his wife, or his wife slash girlfriend says, that's a good question. How did all that come together? Where's the intelligence behind that, she said. And the husband's going, or oh, boyfriend's going, all right, that's a good question. But we just started to see the conversation. Said, Perhaps... The brilliance behind that implies a mind. Would that be reasonable to assess that? Look, if you look at the building plan, it implies intelligence. Somebody's made sure that when you connect this to this, it actually fits. And there's not a three-foot gap. Yeah, you see? So perhaps that mind behind of all of this could point to that God. And we, we and Tom, yesterday afternoon, I was having a conversation in a car with a certain person. My point is this. There are people all around you who God is working on. It may not be, they're not standing around with a flag saying, here, ask me or talk to me. But if you are sensitive, God will open those doors. Now, when you think about our lack of evangelistic success, it boils down to four primary reasons I want to give you. Four hindrances to evangelism. Number one is ignorance. You may want to take a note on this. We just don't know how to do it. And because we don't know how, we'll have a sense of what we feel as proven techniques that allow us to feel comfortable about Christ, we avoid the subject. Because by the way, it's got to get back to Christ at some stage. And we've also got an aversion to canned approaches. So we wind up, here's what we do, and I understand that. Jesus never had a canned approach. So be careful. In fact, avoid canned approaches. Jesus never had one. He didn't approach two people the same. He had the same message, but he approached them differently according to their need. One very successful approach I'd like to commend to you is ask questions. Do not give monologues. So a person says, oh, I don't believe in God. Great place to start. Never fear that. What you want to do is start with their statement of belief. This is where they are. Whether you like it or not, this is where they are. 
and ask them questions and move them to the logical conclusion of that. They may not like the fact that if there is no God, there's no life after death. There's nothing. Now, if they're happy with that, because most people don't think about the implications, and if there is a God, there's either is or there isn't, right? There's only two logical implications. Yes or no? If it's no, it's got one implication, and if it's yes, there's another one. And one of those implications is we're accountable for our actions. So it does have implications. Move them towards a logical implication of their point of view. All the way down. Why should I be moral? Why shouldn't my name be on Ashley Madison? If there's no God, who gives a rip? I'm just a bunch of chemicals floating around. There is no accountability. Why can't I punch you in the face for that matter? Ignorance. Fear is the next one. Most of us are just plain scared. I just want to back up to that one because some of you looked a bit confused. Without God, there is no right or wrong. There is no right or wrong. It's just pulled opinion. See, we need an external source that anchors our right and wrong. It's not my opinion that counts. It's what God thinks that matters. It's what God thinks that matters. Let's back to this one, fear. Most of us are just plain scared. We're afraid when we ask a person a question, or they ask us a question, we won't be able to answer, we'll look foolish. That's okay. If they ask you a question, that's brilliant, and you don't know the answer, that's a great question. Would you mind if I just come back to you on that one? But make sure you do. Otherwise it makes you look unreliable and flaky, and none of us want to be like that. Or we could be scared that he or she may become angry and tell us off. We get in trouble. I'm used to getting in trouble, so it doesn't bother me. Three, the third hindrance to evangelism is indifference. Now, this is very hard to admit. But many Christians just don't care. I find that extremely hard to swallow. We think, well, well, if that's the way that person wants to believe, that's fine, each to his own. And we kiss it off. That's a mistake. And the fourth reason, just generally summed up, is perhaps when you were pre-Christian, you had a bad experience. Perhaps you were turned off by, in your early non-Christian years by some wild-eyed fanatic who pushed you and embarrassed you and tried to force a decision of you. Don't do that. The Holy Spirit is quite capable of drawing the fish at the right time. And as a result of that bad experience, you're reluctant to say anything at all. Now, if it is possible for a moment, I want to move all those excuses straight to the trash can. Move them out and let's have a fresh start. So let's get rid of all that. And by the way, one principle or guideline that can help us from making repeatedly dumb mistakes when we are talking to people who do not have the same view as us, is put yourself in the other person's place. And if you can keep that one thought in mind, that the person is not coming from where you are, nor does he or she understand our mindset. Because mostly we'll encounter people with an entirely different worldview who think it's quite fine to shack up 
or not even get married or have an open relationship. Or, and they come from very different cultural backgrounds from us. So remember that. They are not on the same wavelength. So when we're talking to them, deep in their hearts, they are thinking thoughts like this. Please think about what I am saying. Think about it. And don't just expect me to listen to you. You need to listen to me. It's a two-way street. See, sometimes in their zeal, we come down like a train on top of them. And it's just, you're going to get my opinion whether you like it or not. Second, if you want me to hear you, scratch where I'm itching, which is right there. Don't ignore that point. Somebody's dead scared of dying. Stay on that topic and start from there and move backwards. You'll find it's a hurt, it's a fear, something. But start there. And by the way, please don't talk down to me like you're superior or holier than thou or you never sinned. Talk to me as an equal. And fourth, please speak in language I understand. No shundai hallelujahs. No praise Jesus. I don't understand that. I think you're weird and mentally imbalanced when you say that. So keep it simple, no mumbo jumbo, no spiritual Christianese, keep it clear. That's what they are thinking. Because how can I understand you when you speak another language? That's what happened in Acts 2. They needed somebody to, they actually spoke in the language they understood. They heard the gospel in the language they understood. So this leads us to the New Testament where we're going to look at one man who witnessed to another man with remarkable success because he did it with wisdom and skill. And I love learning from the Scriptures. Bit of background first to get the scene right. This is the first century. And the Gospel, the seeds of the Gospel, were being scattered by the winds of persecution. Imagine that. Let me get this right. ISIS detoned a little bit. Rather than cut your head off, they just stone you. So let's get this right. This is the context. This is not, oh, would you like to hear about Jesus? You know Jesus, I'm after you. I'll stone you and I'll kill you. That is a context of first century Christianity. Let's look at this. Let's kick off in Acts chapter 8. If you have your Bible open to Acts chapter 8. And Saul was there giving approval to his, which is Stephen's, death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered, thousands of them throughout Judea and Samaria. So what we see here is Saul of Tarsus was looking on as the religious leaders of the day stoned Stephen to death after his compelling and convicting sermon. How's that? For a result of a great message, God honouring, you get stoned to death. 
Now the stone sent ripples of persecution throughout Jerusalem, driving the believers out way into the distance of Judea and Samaria. I don't blame them. But persecution did not dampen their spirits. Actually, it emboldened them to share their faith. And one of those who was scattered, just one, was an evangelist with a wonderful name of Philip. It always amazes me the way God used Philip to reach out to a total stranger from another culture and graciously guides this man to faith in Christ. Philip had a person-to-person, one-on-one experience, which is found in Acts 8, where you're opening the Bible right now. And it begins, Philip has just been in the midst of this big revival. Lots of people, thousands had come to Christ, much like the one that sweeps the city when Billy Graham comes into town. So get that. That's the atmosphere of where that's going. Acts 8.25 picks up. And when they testified and proclaimed the word of God, in this case, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So Christ was being boldly proclaimed from village to village around the place. And suddenly, God steps in and does something completely out of the blue. He dispatches an angel from heaven and redirects this man called Philip. And I'd like to look at several guidelines that will help you and I hurdle the barrier to become skilled in sharing our faith. One out of six of them. The first of six is found here at the beginning of the account of Philip's person-to-person experience that you're going to find. The first thing that Philip demonstrated was in sensitivity. How easy would it have been To be where the the buzz and the excitement of a revival had been going on in spite of the persecution. The excitement and the electricity of that Samaritan revival, it would have been very easy not to be sensitive to a new direction. Not this man. He was sensitive and he was alert. There was no struggle. Oh, but God, look what's going on here. He said, I want you to now leave that crowd and go to this one man. Interesting, eh? Leave this crowd and go to this one man that you don't even know. Now, people who become skilled at sharing their faith possess this sensitivity to God. The Bible says here. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go south towards the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. You can still go on that road today. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. Now when the angel of the Lord told Philip to take the trip to the desert road, Philip not only heard the message, but he obeyed immediately. He got on with it. Which means he was available. Which hooks into the next point, availability. With sensitivity, we need availability. It is a fat lot of use. Being having a sensitive spirit, but not being available. Well, yes, I hear, but I ain't going. Or I hear, and I ain't going to do anything about it. Take a look at this next episode in Philip's life. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. An important official in charge of all the treasury 
of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This guy was a high flyer, the treasurer. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. That's a hall. You check it out. That's a long way to go to church, baby. And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So again, this guy was the treasure of the, a treasurer of the Ethiopian dynasty. Obviously, he was tremendously, in my view, dedicated to drive all the way from there down to Jerusalem to go to church. Notice he was also reading a copy of his own Isaiah scroll, which gives you and I a clue to his wealth. Not many people had that. On his way back from church, tells me something else. He hadn't met the Lord yet. He'd gone to church, but he hadn't met the Lord. It's possible to go to church and not meet the Lord, you know. In the middle of the desert, he was reading Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is a classic synopsis of the gospel. It includes, if you go read it, Isaiah 53, it points straight fear to Jesus. And God says, go for it, stay close. So those who are available experience the excitement of being caught up in the opportunities the Holy Spirit is working in. Are you sensitive to people around you? Are you available to be used by God? Availability focuses on our actions whenever God leads and wherever He leads. Now look at the next move he made. Philip took initiative. When Philip heard the Ethiopian official reading from Isaiah 53, which by the way is just a slight point here. If you're reading the scriptures at home in your quiet time, I highly recommend you read the word aloud. It will help focus your mind and you'll find you get a lot more out of it. Your mind will not wander them. Philip heard the Ethiopian official reading from Isaiah 53 and he took the initiative to ask him an insightful question. Notice, he didn't start out telling him. He asked him a question to spark a spiritual conversation. And that is a key. Ask questions to spark spiritual conversations. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked in Acts 30 verse 8 verse 30. So initiative is an important, very important part of evangelism. It's the first plank in the bridge building process. Without that, nothing would have happened. So using questions is an excellent approach again. Sometimes I'll ask, do you ever think about what's going to happen when you're going to die? That may work for one person, not for everybody. Sometimes I may ask, do you ever think about spiritual things? That gets in all sorts of different answers. And then, you know, a favourite one of mine again is a slight twist on that. What do you think happens when we die? 
And they'll say, blah, 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 blah. And you say, well, tell me, why do you think that? More questions and more questions and more questions without peppering them, but let them get it out. But eventually they realise there's no basis for their belief. Ask questions. See where it leads. Go on a journey. Discover what they are thinking. You won't get there if you're sticking it at them all the time. Find it. And why do you think that? That's a really interesting point of view. You think you come back three times. Tell me about that. <laughs> Enjoy it. Because, of course, you're doing the listening and they're starting to feel that you are listening then. You're not so quick to come back with the answer. Hold your ammunition. Keep your powder dry for a while till he suss out the field. But please, please, take it easy. It's like fishing. Patience, intelligence, and skill are not optional. I don't go fishing for snapper, whacking the water, making as much noise as possible and scaring them off. That would be insanity. Which brings us to the fourth guideline, which is tactfulness. There is one very obvious observation regarding Philip's method that I find tremendously appealing. He was completely non-offensive. Non-offensive. Now it is important to remember that it is the cross that will be offensive. The cross will be offensive not the one who is witnessing. And there's a big difference. Philip used tact as he became involved with the Ethiopian official. Let's pick it up again. Back up a little bit and we'll move on. Then Philip ran up to the chariot. He heard the man reading the, uh, the Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I? Unless somebody explains it to me. So Philip, so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the eunuch was reading this passage of the scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and the lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Now notice, he listened without responding immediately as the man confessed his ignorance. That's a good sign, I don't know. And God always gives grace to the humble. So graciously waiting until the invitation came to climb aboard, he started with where the man was at rather than launch into a canned response. And Kiwis are great at spotting phoniness. Start with where they are at. Now, in answer to the man's question, Philip spoke precisely and clearly that Jesus Christ was the Messiah being spoken of. And Philip treated the Ethiopian eunuch with respect, courtesy, and dignity. And he led the eunuch through the words of Isaiah straight to Christ himself. Fifth, 
thing he did. He was precise. There was precision here. The, the eunuch asked Philip, please tell me who is a prophet talking about himself or someone else. Then Philip began with that very passage and told him the good news about the end times. Oh, he told him about Jesus. He was precise. Philip started at square one. No mumbo jumbo, no jargon, no Christianese shundara hallelujahs, no multi-headed beasts coming out of the sea in the book of Revelation or super aggressive, believe now or you'll burn in hell threats. Stupid. Just Jesus. Just Jesus, his love for sinners laid out as a lamb, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, the perfect God-man who offers forgiveness, security, purpose, and hope without him, there is no purpose, there is no security, there is no hope because it's over when you step off into eternity. He stayed on the issue. He refused to dart down rabbit trails. Be careful at rabbit trails. They will derail you. The gospel revolves around Jesus Christ and nothing else. I was in that conversation yesterday and it was getting dragged off. Well, why do Christians believe all these different things in denominations? said, honey, there are 11 basic essentials that the Christians believe. Doesn't matter why they're Baptist, Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian, Methodist, they all believe the same. So let's look at that. And anything that doesn't believe those 11, one of those 11 is a cult. She said, what are those 11? And I proceeded to tell her what those 11 are. She said, that makes sense. And back to the gospel. A quick 30 second, don't go down there. Let's get back to the main issue. The sixth thing that we see here is decisiveness. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptised? Notice there wasn't a three-year gap until he matured or understood everything. He heard the gospel and the guy's gutsy. He says, look, what prevents me from being baptised? And Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart... You may. And he answered, this is the guts of the gospel, man. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered, wait, stop. Stop the chariot. Brakes on. Back up. And they both went, uh, the chariot just stopped. And they both went down into the water. Philip as well as a eunuch. And he baptised him. I love that. There's an immediacy of baptism. It is absolutely non-biblical to wait to be baptised once you've believed. Let me give you one other example. What's the other most obvious example of immediacy of baptism? How about the Philippian jailer? Middle of the night, 1am in the morning. 
sees that, remember? The whole thing shakes. They'll, they'll let go. They go out. The, he's about to kill himself. Paul says, whoa, we're here. Don't do that. Amazed by what happened. This is the middle of the night when you and I are in bed. He goes back, gets his family, says, look what happened. And they get baptised approximately 2 a.m. in the morning. None of this hocus pocus, I have to wait. That is completely unbiblical. They believed and they got baptised. So the African gentleman suggested that he be baptised. I'd like to be baptised. And Philip puts first things first. With decisive discernment, Philip explains that faith in Jesus precedes baptism, never the other way around. You believe and you are baptised in that order. And that did it. The man believed, then he was baptised. No ifs, no buts, no let me think about it, I'm not ready. Take those excuses, fire them in the trash can, empty trash can. So first it was an acceptance of the message. And after that, there was a public acknowledgement of faith as he submitted to baptism. Amazing. Clear. Now, here's the next part, which is also incredibly clear. Jesus gave us the task of evangelism. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Jesus told us, his disciples, to go and make disciples. Preaching, baptising and teaching. Disciple, making disciples means to instruct new believers on how to follow Jesus, to submit to the Lordship of Jesus and to take up his, his mission of telling others about Jesus with compassionate service alongside. To push the point even further, he says here, and these are very important. Let me tell you, I've, done, I've been with many people as they pass this planet. And their last words, the, the family get real close. They bend down because they're normally quite weak and they listen very, very carefully because these are very important words. These are the last words of Jesus on the earth that you're about to read. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Get after it. That's the job. Now today, if I walked in here, uh, actually, if your boss walked in and said, I want you to do this and this and this, you'd go, okay. And you'd get about a plan, you'd assemble a plan, you'd assemble your thoughts, you'd assemble energy, you'd clear some space and you'd get after it. Is that true? Is that true? Yeah. In the same way, go into all other world, share your faith. That's what he said. Otherwise, what he's doing, we're either ashamed of or we're being cowardly. He says, I will give you the power. You will receive power. The Holy Spirit will enable you to be my witnesses. We just now to obey. This is the last recorded statement of Christ on earth. It is thus the final and authoritative and of uttermost importance. 
Somehow it's called the Great Commission, but somehow I fear it's become the Great Omission. Two hours I spent from two o'clock to four o'clock this morning deeply concerned about this. Myself. Because today's harvest is urgent and important. Because we are held responsible to make Christ known in this generation. How will they know unless we tell them? We're not responsible for the results. We are responsible for sharing. God is at work in all who He created. Let's not allow our laid back, lackadaisical, who really cares society to weaken our enthusiasm or slacken our zeal. We used to sing an old song, May the zeal of God consume me. You remember that one? Passion for his purposes. And I began this message with a statement by Billy Graham, and I close with the same for emphasis. The evangelistic harvest is always urgent. The destiny of men and nations is always being decided. Every generation is strategic. We are not responsible for past generations and we cannot bear the full responsibility for the next one. But we do have our generation. And God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfilled our responsibilities. To this age, to your co-workers and to mine, to the members in my sphere of influence, where I'm at a club, be it squash or golf or pistol or whatever it is, I am there and I have a responsibility to them. God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfill our responsibilities to this age and to take advantage of our opportunities. May the Holy Spirit use His Word through this message to strengthen and sharpen our focus on evangelism. Would you pray with me? Just a few thoughts as we prepare our hearts. As we consider the centrality of evangelism to our Christian faith. Would you ask yourself in just this moment, do you honestly desire to strengthen your grip on evangelism? Are you honestly interested in sharing your faith? with this generation of lost and very confused people. Is that you? If it is, why don't you commit to developing 
in cultivating these six guidelines. Father, would you help us share our faith with sensitivity to listen oh so carefully and be ready to follow your leading as we sense there's an openness just like Philip. Father, we want to be available and to stay flexible as you direct us. Would you embolden us to take the initiative at the right time? Guide us by your Spirit to approach conversations to spark spiritual discussion. Holy Spirit, help us to be tactful, to treat others with the care and the courtesy and with thoughtfulness that they deserve with a desire to uphold their dignity and to always speak graciously. Holy Spirit, you tell us not to be concerned about what exactly we should say, but help us to be precise, focus our minds. Focus our conversations on you, Jesus. Help us to stay on you and not be derailed by rabbit trails. Father, help us to be decisive. As your Holy Spirit is at work, help us to speak of receiving Christ. Help us to make it clear that Jesus is ready to receive all who come to Him by faith. Father, today we ask for everyone who calls upon your name in this house, embolden us to share your faith in the powerful, everlasting, and only name that counts, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. And all the people said, Amen.